insight and awareness spiritual explorer, soul intuitive, emotional and spiritual mentor and award-winning author, Lorraine Nylon. Welcome explorers to the Insight and Awareness Spiritual Explorers podcast. I have the absolute pleasure of having Dr. Rodney King, which we're going to call Coach, who's a human animal guide and coach to outliners. And he's also a professional martial art artist who teaches people how to tap into their wisdom and is really looking to help humans flourish with discipline and acceptance of themselves, I would say. Would that be a sum-up, Coach? Yeah, it's a good start, Lorraine, absolutely. Let's (laughs) let's kind of dive into it and explore it a bit. Yeah. So when you say outliners, what do you mean by that? By outliers, um, I mean people who potentially have felt that they've never fitted in to the status quo. Um, I kind of put myself in that same category. and have this kind of constant sense that they are forced to conform. Otherwise they won't be accepted. And the way that I look at it is that what has happened is for many people, especially these outliers is that modern society has taken away their inherent wildness. Oh yeah. And what, yeah. What I mean by wildness is not being wild and crazy, but our ability to show up in life, how we want to so show up on our own terms but with focus, with presence and clarity. And all we have to do is look around us. And I think it's quite evident that the human animal, because that's the way I like to describe it, rather than the human being, because in my mind, when we talk human beings, there is this kind of connotation that humans are above everything else, above nature, and are more important. And clearly, we can see that that is the case, at least how we see ourselves in the global economic structure and the modern world. But a human animal implies that we are part of nature. We are nature. And in that sense, we need to maybe just kind of readdress the way we see ourselves and ground ourselves back to where we belong, which is with nature, not against it. Being part of it. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. So, and, And the trouble is when we do conform to beliefs or structures that don't fit well with us, there's a lot of ramifications for that, isn't there? Absolutely. But I think, to be honest, and maybe it might seem like a very extreme viewpoint, but I think most of us are trying to fit into something that will never make us happy. I think modern society, in the way that it's set up, with this kind of unconscious rhetoric of always having to compete, outdo everyone else, it's all about myself, you know, get to the top regardless of who you have to trample in order to get there. All of these narratives are going to inherently cause us a lot of mental strife. So I'm not surprised that as I look around, most people are struggling, especially in the Western world. Or how my friend John Viveki would say people have lost a sense of meaning. Yes. The question really is, I guess, for me and my work, whichever sphere I come at it from is how do we get back to a more natural state, a state of wildness, like I described, where we can feel that we are fulfilled. And in here, I say that word fulfilled on purpose because I'm not a fan of the word happiness. First of all, happiness being completely oversold in the West. Happiness oftentimes, you know, tends to, especially in the American version, is this Pollyanna, you know, always smiling all the time. And if you're not smiling, then you're not happy, right, kind of thing. But I also think that happiness is uh, momentary. It's not something that lasts. You can, you can be happy today and you can be sad tomorrow. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But I think fulfillment is the ability to have that inner resilience, that inner capacity to be able to move through, move through life, even when things are not going great. So things might not be perfect for me right now, but I can still be fulfilled. Well, the only way that that's going to happen is I need to be anchored in my authenticity. And there's a lot of talk about authenticity, but I think one way to kind of reflect on what that might be is to try to go back in time and look at indigenous people. And there are still obviously indigenous tribes today, but if we look even further back to our hunter-gatherer ancestors, and this is something that a lot of human beings 
don't want to accept, right? That at some point, every single one of us, everybody listening to this podcast, everybody, at some point, our ancestors were hunter-gatherers. So the question we have to ask ourselves, were our hunter-gatherer ancestors as unhappy and so broken mentally and emotionally and spiritually as we are today? I mean, for all that I know and read and researched, and even if you look at indigenous people and the way that they view themselves in nature and with the world, I would say, no, that's not. I think they were, they were very authentic. They were very wild and they were happy in the fulfilled sense, right? That it was, you know, and they, they had bad times and good times just like we, we did. But I don't think they had the kinds of struggle with the mental health issues that we see today. And I'm not surprised that there is, like I keep saying, I think modern society is the catalyst for that. Well, we've gone so far away from even like our tribal roots of being supportive and being part of a group. And we're, and we're segregating ourselves into little sections and we're not, we're not even really engaged. You know, like we, there was a conversation the other day about now instead of actually turning up to things we just send a an emoji you know and and we and we go yeah but we we we're in contact no you're not you, you know like you, you know pick up the phone or knock on the door or engage because that that sense of communicating with one another is is an art we're losing and when we lose as we're losing more and more of that we're losing that sense of connection the real connection of supporting one another Sure. I mean, isn't yeah. it fascinating, Lorraine, that, you know, I think we've heard this multiple times, of course, is that we're in a moment in time in the history of the human animal that we are more connected than we've ever been. Look at us now, right? I'm sitting on an island in the middle of nowhere called the Isle of Man. Oh, okay. You're in, you're in Australia. We're having this <laughs> conversation. So in one respect, technology allows us to to have that opportunity to do that. But yet we have all of this technology, but we are so disconnected, which says something I think very profound, that as good as technology is, it is very clear that it's not going to be our savior. That is true. Yeah. And so, I think too, yeah. the, the yeah. other thing is, is that when we're having, one thing I notice is that with all our social media, we're fed the same message. So before when we were having conversations, like real conversations, you might hear something, which is part of the reason why I'm doing the podcast. You might hear something and you go, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Whereas now when we're fed the same message, it's reaffirming whatever we want to believe. And it doesn't expand us. It doesn't make us knowledgeable. It actually narrows our point of view. So it causes us more segregation and it causes to fight over things that when you break them down, don't even make sense. But well, we've well, had... actually, yo, we actually don't even matter for that. For, for that, fact, <laughs> right? If you look in the the bigger scheme of things, right? If you have to yes. consider yourself as this little blip in the middle of nowhere in this vast galaxy, does it really matter? You know, <laughs> who wore what, or who shook whose hand, or you know, who didn't do this or do that? But the thing is, it's interesting about that is, and this is this is we know this, and it's it is coming more and more to the forefront. But I get the sense that people just don't want to acknowledge it. When you have a specific narrative, whatever that narrative is, and you're punching that narrative into the social media outlets, we know that the algorithm is manipulating it in such a way that all you're going to see is that. And in actual fact, not only are you going to see what you're looking for, you're going to see only what you're looking for, as you noted. So you won't see, you know, an alternative viewpoint. And because negativity always will sell more and they figured that out, you end up going down the negative spiral of what you were looking at in the first place. So it might have been quite innocent initially, but before you know it, you're into all the you know, conspiracy theories and whatever else, and you're in the dark, the dark side, right? You're the dark side of the force, using a kind of a Jedi analogy there. All right. So there's my geekness coming out. But <laughs> that's that that's kind of what happens. And then you think that you have some freedom, but you actually have zero freedom. Your freedom has been already taken away from you. Because if you did truly have freedom, then you should be able to see everything and make a choice and a decision. But that's not going to be. And I see that I see that across the board, right? I have, 
I have children myself. I have two sons. Um, I can see that happening to them and in their interactions. And it's something we have to talk about and we have to unpack. But it's exactly as you said, you're only going to see one narrative because the objective ultimately of the algorithm is to ensure that you stay on the platform for as long as you possibly can. And the more longer you stay on the platform, more eyes on the platform means there's more chance that you're going to pull the trigger and buy something. And so again, we back to capitalism. And this is the thing is that we're in a consumerist society and we continue to voraciously consume and consume and consume, oftentimes with things that we don't need, we, we could go without, but we're in this kind of consumption cycle. And that's this kind of predatory nature that we have become a part of and we're not even conscious of it. I guess the analogy you could use here is a fish in water. Does the fish know that it's in water? Does it sit there and say, oh, hold on a second, I'm, I'm swimming in water? I don't think so, right? Because it is part and parcel of the water. And so we have become unconscious to what is actually going on. And there are a few brave people that are popping their heads up and going, hold on a second, hold on a second, we're drowning here. You know, they, they, they're raising the flag. But the, the system is so insidious and it's so designed to make us conform that most people would much rather just avoid it because, you know, we say that we want freedom, but we actually don't want freedom. We just want to be safe. And if that means ignoring the reality, then that's what we're going to do. And so that's pretty sad, actually. I mean, and I can speak for myself. It's not like I'm saying that I'm sitting here on some kind of, you know, top of the hill and I'm better than everybody else. Right. And so kind of my story is, is this in a, in a nutshell is that, when I, where I grew up in South Africa was on the south side of Johannesburg. It's, it's government housing. It's like the projects in the United States, right? So I grew up in poverty and is, and, and is with many of those kinds of environments. It was broken homes, broken families, you know, lots of drugs. My mother was a raging alcoholic and so forth, right? So I had this kind of early kind of need to want to get out of there. But I was very different to everybody else around me. I was this kind of wild child. I mean, my favorite example of this is when I was in kindergarten. I was about four years old. And I figured out really quickly that during recess, when the bell would go, everybody would obviously move back to the classrooms and then everybody would disappear. So I would hold myself back, hide somewhere in the playground until everybody had gone into the classrooms climb, scale the wall, jump the wall and walk the five miles back home. My grand would answer the door and go, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be at school. So I was escaping to the point that eventually the school had enough. The kindergarten had enough. And they put razor wire on top of the walls to basically keep, keep me in prison because I was the only kid that was, was escaping, right? So I was the kid that kept escaping, right? So they put razor wire around the walls. Fast forward to when I was in my 20s, you know, my attitude was, I never wanted to be back in that kind of environment, you know, back in that state where I lived in that kind of environment where everything was, was poverty. And so my attitude was, well, if you, if you can't, you know, if you can't fight them, join them. And I did everything I was supposed to do that the modern society says you should do in order to be happy. I mean, ultimately, you know, I became a very successful businessman. I ran a successful company. I had the house in the northern suburbs, which is a really good part of Johannesburg. It's a, you know it's a it's an affluent area. My kids went to, and and one of my kids is still there actually. One of the top elite private schools in Johannesburg. I had the sports car, all the trappings, right? right. And out of nowhere, just one, I mean, I hadn't been feeling great for a long time, but just out of nowhere, one morning I woke up and I had this massive existential crisis. And I, right. I said to myself, I am not happy. I am miserable. And I need to do something about this. And that was literally when I was 40 years old. And so I spent the rest of the time up until this point, just figuring out what actually went wrong and how to sort that out and how I can change that. And so all the things I'm talking about is my realization. And I mean, I didn't even finish high school. 
but I went through the entire academic process, right? I earned the so-called coveted, coveted PhD, which is the, the pinnacle of academic success. I did all of that stuff, yet I wasn't any happier for it. I wasn't feeling more fulfilled. And so yeah. that was my realization. So the things that I'm talking about, it's not that I'm sitting here somewhere on a soapbox and I'm saying, hey, listen, you know, I'm better than everybody else. I've, I've been there, done it and got the t-shirt, so to speak, right? And so the, <laughs> this is my realization of, um, of the things that I'm talking about and how I've purposefully tried to change my relationship with the modern world. And as I've done that, as I've constantly tried ways to buck the system as best as I possibly can, I've reinvoked my inner wildness and I feel so much better for it. I feel so much more alive. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to get across in all the different things that I do, no matter if it's coaching or teaching martial arts or doing podcasts or wherever, you know, asked to come and speak, which often isn't the case, right? Because if, if people in the modern world, especially in organizations, don't want somebody like me coming in and talking. Because I kind of yeah. upset the whole apple cart, right? So it's like, that's right. yeah, let's leave it. All of a sudden, all the executives yeah. are leaving the building. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. Having a midlife crisis, realising I feel the same, but I don't know what to do about it. So when, you, when you're saying you're in a wildness, are you talking about fueling your curiosity, being willing to explore things, engaging in what actually makes you feel alive? instead of being on the, you know, I call it the treadmill or the, the merry-go-round. Is that what you mean? Like if, if someone's sitting at home and they're hearing inner wildness, what, do you, what, do you, what are you asking them to think about? I think that's absolutely part of it. I think the other part of it is exactly what I've been trying to say, is that find every opportunity to do the complete opposite of what the status quo says you should do, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of competing with everybody, start to cooperate. See where you can actually work with people. It's actually far more rewarding to actually work with somebody than have an attitude of that you have to beat everybody. Definitely. Actually, I, I think the art of collaboration is something we're losing. You know, like as in, it's really funny. I, I, I did a, a, a function the other day and you could actually feel people that didn't even know me then their first view of me was I was competition. I was like, I could feel that off you, you know what I mean? And it's like, I just said hello. Like that's all, you know, I don't even know what you're doing. I don't, I've got no idea what's happening over there. So instead of having a conversation about it, it was just like, right, you, you're the threat. Mm. Of what? What am I the threat of? But it's because people don't want to collaborate because they think that they need to feel superior otherwise they're going to feel inferior and they don't want to feel inferior so they start competing or judging so they can feel superior which lasts about 10 seconds and then you lose that and then you're going to end up, end up feeling uncomfortable or or you have to go into your own indifference and arrogance to pretend that you've scaled yourself properly whereas you don't need to scale yourself with another person yeah, and you're, you're, you're also saying the right thing there. You're saying conversation. So one of the things that yeah. I've really made a point of doing, because this is what we tend to do, and actually our medical system does this as well. When somebody is struggling, and they clearly are struggling, or they're voicing that they're struggling, the first thing that they get asked is, what's wrong with you? They don't get asked, yeah, true. what happened to you? Yeah. And by reframing the question, you completely change the dialogue. Yeah. I mean, just an interesting thing always is that anybody who's had struggles with mental health, and I think we all have in our own way at some point, some, many people are still struggling right now. When they go to their, their GP, their medical doctor, and they sit, sit there, what does the doctor do? The first thing he says is, what's wrong with you? He never once asks, what happened to you? And it's really what happened to you that's causing all of the problems that you are now facing. And I know that from my own experience is that I had enormous amount of trauma growing up, you know, at the hands of my, my mother, who, like I mentioned earlier, was a raging alcoholic. She was very abusive. She's the reason I never finished high school. She kicked me out of the house when I was 17. I was sleeping on the inner city streets of Johannesburg. I was homeless. 
I was bullied severely as a child growing up. Only recognizing now that the reason I was bullied is because I was different. Like I didn't fit into the status quo. And there was never anybody there to tell me that that was okay. Every time I popped my head up and I wanted to do something different, it was immediately slammed down. You know what I mean? You were immediately put yeah. into a box and you were told to keep quiet, sit still and don't look out the window. And yeah. that's the narrative that many of us have gone through in the Western system. Are we then surprised that so many of us are coming out with trauma? Another thing I mentioned the other day, which I think is deeply connected to this, of course, there are people who deny this. I don't know how, but if you look around, it's very evident that the world is in trouble. Gaia, our mother earth is in trouble. Just look around, look at what we're doing, the destruction we're doing. An interesting maybe position to think about is, is that not really a mirror of our own personal trauma being mirrored back from the planet to us? The reason there is so much trauma in, in the, on the planet, the planet is in trauma, is because we are in trauma as a human race, specifically us that are in the industrialized parts of the world. Mainly for many of us, we often refer to that as the West, but Australia is also part of that too, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. so again, it comes back to this point of saying, okay, well, if modern society is so great, why are we seeing more trouble than we've ever seen in the history of mankind? There's more mental illness now, so-called mental illness, than we've ever seen before. People have a complete loss of meaning. The environment is in dire straits. We got all this technology, but it doesn't seem to be making things better. It's making things worse. We just talked about social media and the ramifications of that. I mean, you could you can almost like put it to the moment of the smartphone's emergence where all of a sudden it was very recognizable if you follow the statistics that suicide rates amongst young people went up. So it's clear to me that this is not the way that we should be doing things. The problem, I guess, is, and this is where I, I have a bit of an issue with the self-help genre and even psychology for that matter. A lot of the psychological treatments are all situated within the problem itself. So what they are trying to do is to make us better conformists, right? They say, okay, here are these self-help things that you can do. But if you look very carefully, it's just self-help stuff to help you just get through the very system that we're embedded in that is the problem in of itself, so that tells me that that can't be the solution. And I think we've all done that again. It's, again, I'm not taking myself out of this. There was a time there where I was looking for answers and I looked to self-help and psychology and many other disciplines. Uh, I'm sure like many people, uh, you know, I read dozens of self-help books. Why is it that we read one and then we don't find the answers and then we read another one and then our shelves are full with the books from all these different authors, but we're still not finding the answer. I think the reason we're not finding the answer is because they're not answering it. What they are doing is, is just telling us how to be better robots, better yeah. cogs in this vast machine that has taken over our innate authenticity, which is our wildness, which has now been taken away from us. So the question really is, and it's a difficult question to answer for sure, but I think I'm trying to do that in my way is how do we reinvoke that? Knowing that we can't go back even if we wanted to. It's not, it's not, it's not a, a proper proposal for most people, right? So if I say, if I say, if I made the argument and I said something to the effect of, well, actually, during the time of the hunter-gatherers, that was likely when we were the the most fulfilled that we've ever been on the planet. And let's say we all agreed on that because there's a lot of evidence yeah. to show that, right? So hunter-gatherer communities were egalitarian, mostly um, contrary to popular belief. They weren't in warfare all the time. They tried to avoid conflict wherever possible. In most hunter-gatherer communities, leadership is non-existent. The only time we have a leader is when there's a problem and then we look to the person that has that specific skill that can help us with the problem that we find ourselves 
dealing with. Once that problem is solved, that leader steps down and just becomes part of the community. And if he doesn't want to step down, he's made to feel like he has to step down, right? So they don't allow that to happen and so forth and so forth. Well, we can't go back. Clearly, we can't go back for many of us. Not even that. The irony is if I wanted to go back and live in the wild, it costs money to do that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) To buy the land and all the other things and to be off the grid. You know, it's not like I can just go. And if I just wanted to go and, you know, pitch a tent somewhere in the wild, it's probably owned by the government and sooner or later I'm going to get kicked out of there anyway, right? So it's it's, it's not the best option for most of us. So the question then is, is there a way then that we can do what we need to do in this modern world, play in the world, so to speak, play in the machine, but without being owned by it? And that's really what I'm trying to get across. That's what I'm trying to seek answers to. And I do think there is ways to do it, as difficult as it is, but I do think that there's ways to do it. And we've just mentioned a few of those, right? Rather than competing, learn to compete. When we talk about communication with people, stop asking people what's wrong with them, ask them what happened to them, have a genuine conversation, get to know where this person is coming from. You know, I think about when like I was coming up as a martial artist, I was just coming out 100 miles an hour with every aggressive, you know, intent that I could use to be taken seriously. And I remember that the people around me that were supposed to be the coaches would use that fuel to their advantage. You know, if they needed somebody to be the the the, the pit bull, they would use me, right? Nowhere in ever did they ever stop and say, why are you showing up that way? Where did this come from? What is the story here? Because had they done that, we could have had a conversation and there might have been an opportunity for me to show up differently in the world. And so it took me right up until my, you know, my early 40s to start figuring this out because I, that's the other thing that we've lost, right? We've lost guides. We've lost real true mentors, yeah. people that yeah. have that historical understanding and knowledge that in a hunter-gatherer tribe, again, they, the elders would always be evident and prevalent and would be the person you would go to. Who, who do most people go to these days? They, they go to YouTube. They go to Facebook. They, and all the places that, as we've already said, because they've been typing in stuff, there's a specific algorithm that's set for them. And that's what it's going to show them. I mean, people can try this at home. I'm sure, I'm sure people have, and you might have done that too, is I can sit on the computer and type in something and my partner can be sitting next to me, type in the exact same thing, and we'll get yeah. two different results completely. And the reason we're yeah. seeing two different results, because it depends on how she's been typing coming up to that, the month leading up to it, and what the algorithm is situated for her. And then, of course, for myself, whatever the algorithm is. And so you can do this yourself, as I've done it, just to prove it to myself, is that I've spent some time just only looking at positive things. And what ends up happening is, especially on my YouTube uh, feed and everything else, especially when you logged in, I only see positive things. And then if I go and I only look at negative things, you know, down the rabbit hole, so to speak, like conspiracy theories, then that's all I see. And so, you know, again, I think we also have to start from a point that we consciously have to choose what we are going to engage in. And that's important too. Definitely. So rather than just being kind of like just out there and hoping and believing that these companies have our best interest at heart, which they, they definitely don't. No, we're just dollars. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're just chasing dollars. Yeah. So I, I find it interesting because I, I would consider my father my mentor as well, but he used to have conversations with us and then he would ask what our opinion was. But we had to, you couldn't just say, you know, the sky is blue. We'd have to say why we why that is our opinion. We'd have to have our reasonings mm. and and even if you know even if he disagreed with it, he was going to come hard at us with his debate and all the rest of it. But he'd be like, yeah, but you've got your own opinion. You've got your reasons why. But you, you that's your starting point. If you need to know more, you expand and you you learn more about it, or you go and research yeah, it. Yeah, sure. And and. Yeah, which was a brilliant way because every conversation that you had was he was interested in what you actually thought. Um, and Ian, if, if it was something that he'd say, well, hang on, what you, have, what you don't know is here's a bit of history and that that's the reason why this started and now we're doing, you know, like I said, there was this whole um, entirety or he'd, or he'd say, hmm, didn't know that and, and, we, and we'd be completely happy that he didn't know that. 
So it's it's uh, so it, and I think that's what I try to do in my books. It's like here's a concept. I don't want you to believe what I believe. Here's the concept of my understanding, and then I've left spaces in the book so that you can come in there and go, well, what do I think of that? Because you're trying, you you know, anything you're doing, regardless of what way you're doing it, is that you're trying to tap into your own authenticity and your own inner wisdom and you're trying to expand on that and experience and contrast does that for us humans we learn from contrast yeah no that's beautiful and i guess you could add to that is that there's also an opportunity if we really want to truly know our essence there is something to be said for taking time out and just being in silence as well yeah so just spending time just with yourself and that's seems like a very simple thing to do but most people will tell you it's extremely difficult because so much of our time is spent shifting ourselves into other places right just finding ways to get ourselves to think of something else so we don't have to deal with the real problems that are actually going on within us and so that time of spent in silence just with yourself is a powerful way to invoke that wildness again that would be and had been historically a wild practice where people would intentionally go out into the wilderness on their own it would be part of a process of coming to know who you are and so these practices that we would have done previously historically we no longer do And so, again, when I talk about wildness, is finding the opportunities that we can to reinvoke those in any way, shape that we can, right? In very, very simple ways sometimes. And I think that's also important is that I think it's great and it's important to look at what's out there and have an informed opinion. But a lot of times it can seem so complicated and so complex and it's overwhelming. So one way to overcome that is to say to yourself, if this week, for example, how can I show up in everything I do as simple as I possibly can? And in ways that would invoke aspects of myself, energies within myself that maybe potentially I haven't interacted with or engaged with. Maybe for a long time and for some people, never. I mean, an example of being going into some place and just being silent without doing anything is a good example mm. of that. Another thing that Definitely. could be an example of that seems really, really silly, but people can try it. I mean, I do this and then people are going to think I'm crazy. But <laughs> try go out for a walk. It doesn't necessarily have to be in any kind of wild place. It can be just in a park. It can be just down the road. Right now on the Isle of Man, we're going into autumn. So all the leaves falling from the trees. So you have all these beautiful shades on the ground. See if you can walk for an extended period of time as light as you possibly can. And what I mean by that is maybe a kind of analogy would work. Think like you're a ninja where you try to walk as softly as you possibly can wherever you go. And especially if you happen to be walking over leaves, instead of making a massive ruckus and noise, see if you can do it silently. Why would that be important? Well, because what happens is, is that when you do that, that's a profoundly embodied experience that really re-centers you. But it's also a primal practice. It's a wild practice. Let's think back to hunter-gatherers. The hunting part was really important. If we were together going on a hunt, the one thing we wouldn't want to do is make a noise. If we make a noise, then we're going to let the animal that we're hunting for food, which is going to put, you know, dinner on the table, know that we're there and it's going to run away. So learning to tread softly is really important, but it also gives you a reverence and respect for place, which is something we've also lost. Something that I just thought of there as an example is that, you think about hunter-gatherers, especially indigenous people, whenever they would hunt, there was always a reverence for that that they hunted for, right? It wasn't just food, but it was also a guide. It was a teacher in the sense that it taught indigenous people best practices on how to actually stay alive. Go Go to a supermarket today and have a look around at how people treat their food. 
Mm. I see this all the time. People just like take things off the shelf and they just throw it into the basket. They just throw it into the, the, the what we call a trolley, right? They just throw it in mm. without any kind of insight or connection or understanding of that is and was a living entity. You're, you know, even if it's just a, a pack of carrots, at one point it was in the ground and it was alive, right? This is how yeah. we become so disconnected from everything. So, you know, I, I'm not in a position, even though I would love to, and I said earlier, you know, if I would, wanted to go live in the wild, it takes money. I don't have the money to do that. So I have to go to Tesco's or wherever, like everybody else. But I try to at least treat what I'm putting into my basket with respect, knowing also that what I put into that basket is what I'm going to consume. And what I consume becomes part of me. So if I'm going to eat junk, then I'm going to feel junk. And that's how I'm going to show up in the world, in everything that I do. There's no, we need to get past this idea that everything is in silos and we're all disconnected. Everything is connected if we want to acknowledge it or not. I mean, even if we get really kind of ridiculous now and go all the way to the subatomic level, right? At the fundamental level, I mean, people don't think about this, but it's amazing if you really set your mind to it. At the fundamental level, the, this laptop that I'm talking to, right, and I'm talking to you through the camera and the mic that I have in front of me, at the fundamental level, that atomic structure, that subatomic structure is the same atomic structure that's inside you and me. Yet for some odd reason, we have this thing called consciousness and we're having this conversation and these things don't, right? But at the fundamental level, we're exactly all the same. We're all connected. And so wherever you can feel or try to reinvoke that connection, that's really a powerful and important place to begin. So my example of walking lightly or spending time in stillness or just acknowledging the food that you put into your basket at a supermarket and acknowledging where it came from and honoring that, I think that is a powerful start. And I find that it starts changing the way that you see the world and the relationship you have with the world. Yeah, start feeling part of it. Yeah, instead of separate from it. And I could go on and on and on. Yeah. I've got lots of things that I do. I just, you know, I've got <laughs> lots, of, lots of little quirky little things that I try to do as best as I can to try to reinvoke that. For example, right now it's raining outside. Okay. When last did, some, did, did somebody or a person actually go outside intentionally and stand in the rain? You never see that happen anymore. Everybody's trying to run away and get out of the rain. But just standing in the rain, standing in a storm, invokes your wildness. You know, that's why all these, like, if you think about it, like, you know, especially parents will, will, will know this, and, and obviously kids do this naturally, is that I remember stalking my kids, right? As a game, right? You know, like you stalk up on your kids and you try to catch them underwear and give them a fright. Why does that feel yeah. so much fun and so exhilarating when you do it, even as an adult? Because it's wild. That invokes yeah. our innate wildness. And that's why we love what that feels like. And if we look around the world, that's why everybody's trying to get into all these extreme versions of sport and everything else, because they're trying to refine their wildness. I, I'm not surprised that that that's the that's why those things are so popular. Yeah, definitely a different way. You know, it's a not a different way of looking at it, but it's part of ourselves that we do. Well, we've been trained or conditioned, however you want to look at it, to shut it down and fit into the box. And, and you know, I look at that as like letting your uniqueness fly. You know what I mean? Like mm. whatever, whatever excites you, get out there and explore it so that you, because you'll feel yourself within your own uniqueness. And you even said it, Lorraine, you said in the box, what do we live in? We live in, yeah, we live in boxes, right. <laughs> our cities are boxes, everything is straight lines, right? And right angles. And if you, if you go into the wild, it's pretty much completely opposite to that, right? It's, it's, it's just a completely I, way, different way of seeing the world. And that's why we need to get, get in touch with that. Well, even the messages that we give, you know, like we even, you know, um, whether it's clothes or I, I can remember one of the, the book covers and, and someone in the know said to me, 
you want to stand out. You want something that's unique. Now go and have a look to see what everyone's doing so you match up with them. And I went, did you just hear what you said? You said be unique but go and find out what everyone else is doing and do the same as them. And I said, that's not unique. But that was the message. So, like, if, if you're a child and you're getting told, yeah, be, be authentic but, by the way, work out what everyone else is doing and do the same as them but just pretend that you're being authentic and you'll be fine. That, that's the confusing message that we're giving giving everybody, yeah. which is crazy when you think about it. Absolutely. Well, I think it's time to play Flip the Book. So, cool. so basically you've got three books to pick from, one, two or three, mm-hmm. and then we'll see how relevant it is to you. Okay. What book would you like? So, one, two or three? Um, let's go for two. Two. And coach can't see them, and I randomly put them on my desk, so it's just however they land. Um, so there's no rhyme or reason to what page, what book is going to be one or two or three on each episode. So could you give me a number between one and a hundred and eighty-eight? Seventy-three. Seventy-three, and you have one, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs to pick from. Third paragraph. Third paragraph. Excellent. That's a little quote. So you need to be truthful to resolve and you will protect your desired denial by being indifferent to the reality of your own reactions and responses. I'll give that to you again. Mm. You need to be truthful to resolve or you will protect your desired denial by being indifferent to the reality of your own reactions and responses. I think you work... You're you're trying to explain to people what their natural reactions and and responses could be. So would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And just what came to mind there. So just a bit of a a bit on my PhD. So my PhD was in mindfulness. I took a, a perspective from an embodied perspective of mindfulness as it relates to leadership performance. So if we just look at this concept of being mindful, I think that that's where that this idea of fully experiencing your potentiality comes from because you're able to be present with whatever is arising inside, whatever is happening on the outside, but crucially without judging the experience. And so what that does is it opens up potentialities. It opens up alternatives. So rather than just being reactive and just coming out and just reacting as you typically would, you have that space that moment in time between the stimulus and the reaction, you have that moment, that space. And if you can capture that space, then you can see not only your own experience, but the world in a different way. Yeah. When I, when I write about reactions, I say that they're often fueled by your emotions. You know, you're not thinking, you're disengaged from your thought process and your actual awareness and you're just, you know, emotionally reacting, whereas responding is what you've just said there, is that you've taken that time to work out where you sit, what you what feels right for you, what what resonates with you and you respond mm. from there. That's that's the way I look at it. And when you're working with people, do you find their desire to hold on to their denial is one of the first hurdles you've got for them to sort of come back and being able to be for a want of a better word, more in tune with their authentic self. Absolutely, because I think you you move towards what is familiar, even if the familiar is something that's destructive. So you have yeah, to true. kind of start there first, the recognition that this is where my problems arise. But sometimes what people really need is an opportunity to have some space, to not be engaged yeah. with it all the time. And I think that's where this idea of being present is really powerful is that you can be fully with what is emerging without having to create a story or a narrative around it. And what I find fascinating there anyway, is when we talk about this idea of emotions and and we may not have time to go into that, but emotions Mm -hmm. is a construct. We think emotions Mm -hmm. happen to us, but they don't. We create those emotions. And those emotions are created through many different ways. One, of course, is how we were brought up, the culture that we were brought up in, the environment 
that we find ourselves in and just how we've in, invariably started to react to certain situations. That's why oftentimes very similar experiences invoke very similar emotional reactions. But if we understand that we are the creator of our emotions, that puts us in a very powerful place because that means we can uncreate that reaction. We can change it because an emotion isn't this hardwired circuit in your brain. You don't have a fear circuit and a happy circuit and a sad circuit. The reason you're feeling fear is because somewhere in your life, you created that narrative around that. And anything that comes up in your life that looks similar to the original thing that you said that is fear will invoke the same response. And said a different way, maybe to make it easier for people to understand is that I can have two people both having all the same physiological changes before they go onto the stage to give a speech. One person will identify all those physiological changes as excitement. Another person will take those same physiological changes and call it fear because they have a fear of speaking to other people, especially in front of a large audience. The key element there is the physiological, the interoceptive state is exactly the same. The only difference is, is the narrative that's being put on top of it that then creates this excitement for one person and fear for another, which speaks to what I just said. And, and even in the Buddhist tradition, they're very much in line with that, that idea that emotions are constructed. You construct your emotions, which again, like I said earlier, the beautiful thing about that is you can deconstruct it. De and the only exactly. way that you can deconstruct it is first of all, to be present and have that space to recognize it as it arises in that moment, but then not to engage with it in the way that you typically would by justifying it. The reason I feel this way is because of this. If you can leave that out just for a little bit, you can start to see the transient nature of that emotion and that it comes and it goes. And you start to understand the deeper connection to your history and where that you know, initially came from. And we talk about, for example, trauma. I am very well aware now that many of my reactions to situations come about because of what happened to me as a child. And the fact mm. that I know that means that I can change my behavior in that very moment. Now, do I always get it right? Of course not, right? But no. the difference is what would have been something that I would have held onto for hours, for days in a negative cycle, I'm now able to let go in a very short period of time. And to me, that's a victory, right? So where something would have happened before and would have set me off into a negative spiral for days, now maybe it's only an hour. Well, that's, 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 that's yeah. a huge accomplishment. Oh, it's massive. Because I think we don't always take that into account of how our trauma, especially as children, is so deeply ingrained within the, the, our hardwiring, not just in our brains, but through our, throughout our entire body. And it's a very difficult thing to break. You know, it's, it, the, the, I grew up not trusting anybody and my trust issues came from the fact of what my mother did to me the very person I yeah. should be able to trust. So then it makes sense that I would be distrustful of everybody else. And coming back to, again, what I said earlier is that in what, when I was growing up and when I was exhibiting what I would consider now not the most appropriate behaviors, nobody ever once said to me, what happened to you? What's sure. wrong with you? There must be something wrong with you. Oh, you've got a chemical imbalance or something, you know, you've got low, you've got low serotonin. You know, that's what, that's what we get told, right? So I go, this is the funny thing too, funny and sad, I can go into a doctor and I've been down that road. I can go into a, a doctor's room or a psychiatrist's room and I can give a prescription of what, I, what is wrong with me. These, these are the things that's wrong with me. And that psychiatrist will say, oh, you're depressed. Um, you need this medication. And then I can go around the corner to another psychiatrist, say the exact same things. Oh, no, no, no. You have bipolar. You need this medication just kind of interesting right <laughs> is that you could go yeah. to five different medical doctors and get five different um, conclusions of what's wrong with you and so then it's 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 not uncommon for people to have a particular thing that they're struggling with and to have five different diagnoses it's it can't it can't yeah. be so many things wrong but nowhere in any of that like i keep saying nowhere in any of those experiences that i had that once ever did that medical doctor say what happened to you 
like really understand what happened to you. And so I think much of our trauma stems from that. And then we I keep coming back to what I said in the beginning. Now we're in the system that is telling us unconsciously that we need to be competing. We need to be hustling. I can't stand that idea of the, especially in the entrepreneurial world, you've got to hustle, hustle, hustle people posting, uh, you know, photographs of their watch at 4am in the morning. I'm up when everybody else is sleeping, this kind of stuff. Right. It's, yeah, right. and so you never feel good enough. You never feel that you could ever meet whatever this criteria actually is. And so you fall into despair and then you've got trauma and then the world has got trauma. And then we wonder why we're in this sinking pit and we feel terrible. You know, I, I, I want to tell people yeah. if, if this is a, maybe a positive message is with my realization is that there's actually nothing wrong with you. You're not lazy. You're not stupid. You're not working. It's not that you're not working hard enough. It's that the entire system is against you. And so that's what you're fighting. And so it comes back to what I'm advocating is that find a way to go against the status quo. Now, when I say that, I do not mean in any way, shape or form in some kind of malicious way or illegally, because that's not what I'm saying. You should always yeah. ask yourself before you do something, I'm going to do this because I want to be authentic. But in doing this, does this in any way, shape or form endanger another human life, a human animal life, or yeah. an animal for that matter, or the planet? And if I can honestly say that it's not, then go ahead and do it. And that's what I mean by bucking the status quo. Because every time you do that, you feel alive. And that, that to me is, is important. You know, because that gives you that that sense of getting back your 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 innate in your your innate authenticity back, at least for a moment, and that's that's a powerful yeah. place to be. I, and I think the the big thing to get to be able to do that is actually start working on resolving your reaction mm. to other people's judgment. Because as soon as you get to the point where you go, right, this is me, judge away, do your thing, but do it over there, and I'll just keep moving the way I want to all of a sudden they're actually gravitating to you because they they feel that authenticity it's fascinating if you if you're in a room full of people you can tell the authentic people because the other people are coming up and they want hugs they want you they want to spend time talking to you they want they want that because we're attracted to it so this fear of being judged and ostracized and and shunned, you'll get that, but that they were never going to be part of your um, party anyway. If you know what I mean, yeah, they were always they, they they're stuck in their stuff. So it'll sort of it'll sort of let you gravitate to the people that are interested. I think and know, be interested in. Yeah, them. I think there's also an opportunity yeah. there to have empathy. I feel that the reason people judge is because that's the learned behavior that the system requires. It comes back to this hyper competitive state that we're all in. That's why we judge oh, everybody sure. else. So in a way, I yeah. feel sorry for those people that they feel the need to judge in order for them to feel validated. Well, it's it's, a, and it's an expression of their fear of not being good enough. Yeah. And and the sad part, of, you know, we are advertised, you're not good enough unless you have this or you've got to have the house that says to the world that you, you know, you're successful or you've got to have the car or the, or the partner or whatever it is. So we're telling everybody that you've got to have these boxes ticked and you've got to have this perfect and don't worry, we'll still judge you for it because we want you to feel bad about yourself so you'll stay as a consumer. So that's the that's the society we live in. But if we come out of that, if we if we allow ourselves to okay, if you if you if you're stuck there, okay, I'll st I'll keep being me. You'll work it out when you're ready too. That's how I look at it. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> uh, thank you, Coach. I've enjoyed this conversation and thank you for sharing time and conversing with me. You're more than welcome. <laughs>